Who am I? What do other people think about me? Does it really matter what other people think about me? It really matters what other people think about me. I can't stop thinking about what other people think about me. Does it really need to matter? Is it important? We are looking at the concept of the self this week as we address the self in chapter six. So I'd like for you to take for a minute and think about this question. Who are you? Now, sure, beyond the um, basic outward characteristics like I'm tall, I have brown hair, I'm a guy, I'm a girl, I'm a person, beyond those simple physical characteristics, who are you? What do you think about yourself? How would you describe yourself? What are some characteristics that make up yourself? When we look at self-concept, that's what we're talking about. Who are we? Our self-concept is kind of our organization of beliefs about ourself. It may include things like our strengths and our weaknesses. It may include things like our possible selves or the people that we want to be, the people that we are striving to become. These are all the things that factor into our self-concept. Now, what are some things that create our self-concept? Our own observations and our own understanding of ourselves, but also social comparison. The social comparison theory is just that, that we use other people to kind of compare ourselves to. And we see our we see social comparisons starting in children as early as four and five. They compare themselves to other people in order to kind of assess their abilities. Where do I fall? Well, I'm taller than other people in my class. I'm smarter than other people in math. Maybe I read slower than some of my people in, in reading group. Those are the ways that we kind of develop our self-concept. Now, we have something called a reference group. And a reference group is typically a group that we make a lot of our social comparisons to. These may be people that are in a similar age. They may be people that are in a similar, um, you know, neighborhood. They may be pe- they may be people that we associate with a lot. If you start school and or you're returning to school and you come to school, we quickly gauge the room when you walk into a classroom. You scan the room and you make some quick comparisons. I don't want to sit next to the wall. I don't want to sit on the front row because that's where all the nerds sit. Uh, You know, you quickly gauge who else is in the room. Who are we going to compare ourselves to? Do they look like they're smarter than me? Do they look like they're older than me? That is, we're going to use those groups, then our reference group, to kind of gauge those comparisons about who we are and to help um, build and add to our self-concept and our idea about who we are. There's some other places that 
factor into our self-concept in addition to our own social comparisons. There's things like feedback from other people. Feedback from other people play into our self-concept. And then also our cultural values. There are individual societies and collective societies. Um, An individual society is more like the United States, where we kind of praise individualism. We encourage people to be different and unique and not fall into a collective. Individuals in an individualistic society have much more of an individual self-concept. Their self-concept is tied to their specific attributes versus a collective society that is formed by, um, their self-concept is formed by the collective attributes of the group and how the group performs versus how they perform individually. Now, you can also have a collective self-concept if you, particularly if you play on a team, you may have a collective self-concept about a team and the attributes that that team brings, how you factor as an individual into that team may also increase um, or change your self-concept. And so there's a lot of different things that uh, factor into our self-concept. And then one of the things that our self-concept really does is it really helps to develop our self-esteem. So our self-concept, this idea or these characteristics and traits that we would use to describe ourselves is what really factors into our self-esteem. And so our self-esteem is referring to our own assessment of our personal self-worth. Now, this too, our self-esteem, comes from a lot of different things, not just our self-concept, but there are things like our relationships factor into our self-esteem, our academic images, our physical images, our emotional aspects factor into our self-esteem. And so when we're talking about Um, self-esteem and whether or not a person is confident or not confident, there's a variety of ways in which we can demonstrate this and look at individuals who have low self-esteem versus individuals that might have higher self-esteem. Now, why would we want to look at this in in the first place? Is there differences? As we'll see as we go forward, Individuals with higher self-esteem do have some different outcomes than individuals with low self-esteem. However, the good news is, is that we can all work to increase our self-esteem to have better self-esteem over time. So what is self-esteem? Self-esteem is really kind of construed by two primary ways. There is trait self-esteem and then there is state self-esteem. Trait self-esteem is referring to these um, specific abilities or tasks or characteristics that we may possess. These are oftentimes ongoing and not changing kind of traits about ourselves that factor into our self-esteem. So things like whether or not we're athletic, whether or not we're intelligent, whether or not we're friendly, whether or not we're loyal. These were all some of those aspects that we talked about during personality and some of those traits for personality. So these are often consistent and they oftentimes start to develop early in childhood and are consistent over time. 
And then there are state self-esteem. Our state self-esteem is oftentimes changeable, and it refers to how individuals feel about themselves at any given moment. And so that's why it's changing, because our state self-esteem is often by feedback of other people and observations. So in a specific moment, our state self-esteem may fluctuate and may be much more sensitive to other individuals. Now, we found that individuals who have um, a higher self-esteem, their state self-esteem tends to fluctuate less. Those individuals with lower self-esteem tend to have a higher fluctuating state self-esteem, or their self-worth is always dependent on how other people perceive them and the feedback that they're getting from other people. Now, this can obviously be very dangerous because that means that their self-worth is almost always on the line and always changing. So let's look at how important self-esteem is. What we have found is that self-esteem is really key for um, a lot of of advantages in life. One of the biggest advantages is with emotions and with emotional spheres. So with our emotional stability, we've found that individuals with a higher self-esteem tend to consistently report happiness, being happier and a stronger report of happiness as well. We also found, or researchers have also found, that people with a higher self-esteem tend to have better relationships. They tend to be more likable. They tend to be rated as being more attractive. And they tend to have a better success with relationships. But what about coping and self-esteem Well, we found that coping and self-esteem, this is another great advantage. Individuals with low self-esteem, and they tend to have more of a blaming, self-blaming attributes, which tend to have lots of negative advantage or lots of disadvantages, negative impacts in um, how we cope with stress and how we cope with pressures in the world. So again, our self-esteem and a higher self-esteem may actually help us to cope with um, stress and with changes in our life. One area that we really don't see any change is with academic performance. Um, Our self-esteem really does not necessarily impact our academic performance or our occupational success. But there are a lot of areas in which high self-esteem may actually help with individuals in coping and their emotional success. Now, I do want to clear up one thing before we move forward. When we're talking about high self-esteem, we're not talking about neuroticism or I'm sorry, we're not talking about narcissism. Uh, Narcissism is referring to uh, individuals who are very, have an inflated sense of self-worth. These people who are very narcissistic are very um, egocentric or self-motivated, and so they tend to have an inflated sense of their self-worth. They regard themselves as better than everybody else, but they are also very, very sensitive to criticism. They tend to be preoccupied with success 
And so oftentimes their self-esteem may be more fragile than what we suspect, but they come off as having this inflated sense of self-worth. And so we oftentimes think of them as having high self-esteem, but that is not having high self-esteem. Having high self-esteem is not necessarily meaning that you're bragging about yourself. Having high self-esteem is just confident in your abilities and your state so that you can um, produce the best in your environment and cope with stress the best. So how does our self-esteem develop? Well, there's really a couple of key factors in the development of self-esteem. We know that self-esteem emerges in early childhood and that as you go through childhood, there are some changes in um, really in middle childhood, predominantly in adolescence. We see a dramatic dip in self-esteem. All individuals report lower self-esteem during adolescence, obviously a, t- a period of turmoil, but then it increases as we move through into adulthood. Now, there are a lot of things that help to develop self-esteem. One of the main factors is parenting, and the involvement of parents can really help the development of self-esteem. Diana Birnbaum looked at four distinct parenting styles and the importance. And in each one of these parenting styles, she was looking at emotional support and um, also um, uh, respect and the expectations for respect. And so looking at each of the four parenting dimensions, there's the authoritative, authoritative parenting, there's authoritarian parenting, there's permissive parenting, and there's neglectful parenting. And authoritative parenting, they use a lot of um, uh, the authoritarian parenting uses a lot of um, rigid control and not a lot of emotional support. So authoritarian parenting are the ones who rule with that iron fist. And so they have a lot of control over their kids, but not a lot of emotional support. And so what happens is because that lacks that emotional support, it oftentimes um, creates a child who has a very low self-esteem. Permissive parenting is very, very high emotional support, but very, very low control. And so they're very invested in ensuring that their child is very emotionally supported, but not a lot of control as far as setting limits or following through with punishments. And so these individuals may also experience lower levels of self-esteem because they didn't have that balance. And then with neglectful parenting, neglectful parenting is both low emotional control and low low emotional support and low control. So these children also result with a low self-esteem because they didn't have a lot of um, regulation or rules or um, consequences in their life, but they also didn't have a lot of emotional support. So what is the ideal? The ideal is the authoritative parenting. Authoritative parenting have a lot, have very high emotional support, but they also have reasonable control or reasonable limits. So these parents are the parents who are going to set limits and explain those limits. They're going to say things like, if you stay out too late, I'm going to punish you. Your punishment will be. And then they'll follow through with that. 
but they do it in a loving manner that is also very emotionally supportive. And this will result in children who have high self-esteem or a good self-concept that will fuel that self-esteem. So what if you didn't have those authoritative parents? It's okay because there are some ways that we'll talk about that we can develop a healthy self-esteem. Now let's consider, let's look at how people construct and maintain a positive, coherent self-esteem, especially over time. There are some cognitive factors, some thoughts, some thinking processes that go into the development of self-esteem. So we know that there are some automatic processes that we do. We get up, we check our email, we kind of go through some things and don't really think about those. Those are mindlessness. And so mindlessness individuals tend to um, be taken off guard when confronted with challenges or confronted with um, some uh, stress in the day versus the controlled processing. And controlled processing is more of that mindfulness, the things that we are focused in on and paying attention. Now, all of us go through some automatic processing. There are some things that we do, and it really is kind of beneficial getting up, making your breakfast, eating breakfast, that allow you to focus more on provide some more mindfulness or controlled processing. So for example, when I get up and I'm making my breakfast in the morning, I um, pretty much make the same thing every day so that I don't have to think about it. I can focus in on what I'm going to be doing, thinking about the things that I need to do all day long, maybe even making a mental checklist so that I can get these things done. And so that if something comes up during the day, that I wasn't expecting for or planning for, it's okay because I can adjust and I can move through that, um, that task, whatever it is, and not completely disrupt my entire day. And so there is some time in which that mindlessness is okay because it allows, it frees up some abilities for us to think about other things. Now, when we spend a lot of time in mindlessness, or going through automatic processes and not thinking about other things, that can be detrimental and not helpful to development of self-esteem. Some other things are where are attributions or self-attributions. How do we attribute things like our success and failures? So there are internal attributions and external attributions. Our internal attributions are when we attribute things to internal dispositions. For example, I um, didn't pass my first exam because I didn't study for that. That's an internal attribution. I'm owning it. I didn't study for the exam. I wasn't prepared for the exam. I wasn't sure what to expect from the exam. Um, those are all some internal attributions. Eh, maybe the last one's external. External attributions. External attributions are when we blame it on something other than those internal dispositions meaning we blame it on out, outside things like I failed my first exam because that timer in the corner kept ticking, ticking, ticking away. Or I blame my failure on that first exam because the internet was glitching 
or it was raining outside. Those are external dispositions. With internal dispositions, we are, have the ability to learn from these. I didn't prepare as well. I didn't read all the chapters. Those are internal attributions. Now I can take that and I can change that and learn from that for the next time. When we blame it on external attributions, we don't have any control over the weather or the internet or the time ticking away in the corner. And so there's nothing that we can do about it. It's very much like Siegelman's learned helplessness and not being able to um, take control of that situation and not being able to learn and change from that. Expanding on these internal and external attributions are stable or unstable, um, internal and external attributions. And so we can look at, um, according to Bernard Weiner, uh, he looked at these stable and unstable internal and external attributions. And so we can really evaluate different situations, whether, whether or not it was internal or external, and whether it was stable, meaning something that is permanent, like an internal stable attribution would be your intelligence, and or whether it was an unstable, an unstable or temporary internal attribution would be things like your mood or your fatigue, and then external causes that are unstable are things like luck or opportunity and stable ones are external stable ones are like task and difficulty. And so we can further kind of evaluate these internal versus external attributions based on whether or not it is stable or unstable. And so from this perspective, we would look at it and say, well, maybe I failed my exam because I um, am not smart enough. And then that would be a stable internal cause. If we failed our exam because it was too difficult, that would be an external stable cause. If we failed our exam because we were too tired, that's an unstable internal cause. Obviously something that we can fix and change, no different than the stable internal cause. If we failed the exam based on um, opportunity, meaning, you know, it was raining outside, that's an unstable external event or attribution. And so they play a real key way, um, or they, they play a key factor into our feelings, our motivational states, and our behaviors that then also will factor into our self-esteem and the development of our self-esteem. Um, the other thing that factors into the development of our self-esteem is explanatory style. How are we going to explain these um, attributes, these causal attributes in our life? And so we can look at these then and say that there's basically two different, and this was Martin Siegelman found that there are two different um, explanatory styles. There's the optimistic explanatory style and the pessimistic explanatory style. The optimistic may look at failing that test and say, well, you know what? I was tired and whether or not that, and that's an internal unstable attribute. So I can do something about that. I can change that for the next exam and I can you know, sleep better before the exam. I can plan better for the exam. They can uh, optimistic, um, a optimistic explanatory style may also look at it and say, 
I didn't prepare. And so in order to increase my intelligence, I need to prepare a little bit better by studying and reviewing these things for the exam. And then I can do better on the exam. That's again, an optimistic, a pessimistic um, explanatory style would approach this from just the opposite that, you know, there was absolutely nothing that I could do. There was no way I could pass that exam. Everything lined up against me, or I'm not smart enough to pass that exam. Those obviously two different explanatory styles are going to factor into our self-esteem and our self-concept as well. Um, that is going to, again, fuel that self-esteem. Now, there's some also, there are motives in guiding our self-understanding. And the motives in guiding our self-understanding also really help to um, factor in to the development of our self-esteem. So our guiding self-understanding, motives in our guiding our self-understanding can factor into that. Things like self-assessment. The motive for self-assessment or the self-assessment motive, how much is a person really engaged in truthful information about themselves? Are you motivated to learn more about yourself in a truthful manner? If you are motivated to learn more about yourself and inquisitive about yourself, you're probably more likely to develop a little bit more healthy or self-confidence or um, self-esteem in that realm. There's also self-verification motive. The self-verification motive drives people towards information that matches what they already believe about themselves. And so this is kind of a tendency to strive for a consistent self-image. This is factoring into that um, state traits that we were talking about, that state self-esteem that we were talking about, individuals with that self-verification -motiv self motive are driven to find situations and information that matches what they know about themselves. And so again, they're going to develop a healthier self-esteem. There's also self-improvement. The self-improvement motive is Individuals, when you've learned more about yourself, are there things that you want to improve? That improvement will obviously help to develop a healthy self-esteem. And then lastly, self-enhancement self motive. The self-enhancement motive is a tendency to maintain this positive feeling about yourself. And so once you have kind of developed a healthy self-esteem, individuals um, with the self-enhancement motive are constantly seeking out those situations in order to maintain that positive self-esteem uh, and positive self-confidence. In addition to understanding what motivates people to uh, self-evaluate or to evaluate themselves, it's also key to look at what motivates people to self-enhance or what drives people to seek out positive information about themselves, which will in turn help to boost their self-esteem. And so some of the ways that we can, um, some strategies, three strategies specifically, in which people commonly use to kind of 
um, look at and self-enhance or motivate themselves to self-enhance are things like the self-serving bias, basking in reflected glory, and then self-handicapping. So these are kind of three preservative ways in which we can help to enhance our self-esteem. The self-serving bias is just that. It's when we look at our successes and failures, we tend to um, enhance our successes by contributing those to internal um, attributes. So when we look at a success, when we do well on an exam, we tend to say, I was really prepared for that. I really know this information. I'm really smart. I get really good grades. All of those are attributing it to internal factors. When we fail, we tend to attribute it to a situational factor, meaning I was really tired. The I was really stressed out. I just, you know, wasn't ready for it. Those are all, you know, situational attributes. And we do this because it it's just that. It is a self-serving bias. It kind of preserves our self-esteem in a lot of ways. Another one that we do is basking in the reflected glory. And that is when we tend to um, look back and enhance our image by publicly associating with those who are successful around us. So for example, when our team wins, when our team wins, we want to bask in that glory. And we also kind of do this even with our personal wins. When we personally have a success, we want to bask in that glory because again, it's kind of self-preservative for our self-esteem. And then the last thing that we tend to do is self-handicapping. And self-handicapping is when we sabotage our own performance so that we can provide an excuse for our failure. So, for example, if you've got a paper coming up or you've got an exam coming up, and instead of preparing for that exam, you know, you make a choice to go and do something else, or instead of... Um, particularly I find this with students and papers, if they're anxious about writing the paper, instead of preparing in advance for the paper, they wait until the last minute, then they throw something together. And then it's almost like self-sabotage. They say, well, I, I had too much work to do. I had too many things going on. There was no way that I could have been successful on that. And that's a preservative mechanism. Instead of preparing for the paper and turning the paper in and, you know, maybe feeling like you didn't succeed or being faced with the potential that you may not succeed, they set themselves up for failure, self-sabotage by waiting until the last minute. So all of those are really kind of ways in which it helps to preserve our self-esteem. Not always good ways, but it does help to preserve it. So one of the things that we have found with self-esteem is that self-regulation is key. And they've been researching this for years. Self-regulation is the ability um, or it's the process of directing and controlling one's behavior. And they've done lots of research studies with this. Even with young children, they can see in young children, if they have this self-regulation, that they are more successful later on in life. And this is where that infamous marshmallow test comes in, where you can measure your self-regulation and how um, much you are able to control yourself in that situation. Now, the key um, to self-regulation is self-efficacy. And so self-efficacy is referring to um, our belief about our own ability and behaviors. 
that lead to expected outcomes. So our self-efficacy is kind of evaluating our own behaviors and how much we believe that our own um, behaviors and performances are attributed to those expected outcomes. And so self-efficacy is really key to that self-regulation in that if we believe that we our expected outcome is success and that we believe that we can, that we have the ability to succeed, then that will really help us to be successful. Um, So looking at our self-efficacy and how can we develop self-efficacy, there are really four sources that really help us to develop some self-efficacy. The first one is mastery experiences. Mastery experiences is just that. Rehearsal. It is mastering this new skill. Whenever you set out to do anything, if it's something new that you're learning, You're not expected, you shouldn't be expected to get it right the first, the second, maybe even the hundredth time. They say that in order to become a master at any skill, whatever it is, whether you're taking up golfing or whether you're taking up tennis or woodworking or any number of things going back to school, that you should expect to spend 10,000 hours mastering that skill. So if you get a new job, and it's your first week or first two weeks at at the job, you should not be expected to master that job. And in order for you to be a master in whatever job it is you're doing, if you are just becoming a nurse or an ultrasound tech or a woodworker, it is expected that you will take 10,000 hours to to master that skill. That's a lot of mistakes. So give yourself a little bit of room because persistence and persisting through your failures will eventually lead to success and having the self-efficacy to say, I can do this and not give up. The second um, source of self-efficacy is vicarious experiences, being able to improve by watching others. And anytime, again, if you're learning a new skill, If you're um, learning how to pitch or you're learning a new pitch or learning a new dance move or learning a new golf swing, you can obviously do it through mastery, but you can also do it by vicarious experiences. Watching other people do that skill will also help you to perform the skill that you want to learn or help and benefit you in Uh, watching other people, and then vicariously learning that skill. The third one is persuasion and encouragement. Although it's not quite as effective as the first two, obviously the first two are key, but persuasion and encouragement is another way to develop self-efficacy. Encouraging others, pushing through and giving um, other people encouragement is also helping to reinstate that in your mind. So we, I talk um, often about positive self-talk, and that is what a lot of persuasion and encouragement is. When you're encouraging others and you hear yourself saying, yeah, you can do this, you've got this, in a way you're also encouraging yourself. And then the last one is interpretation of emotional arousal. And this is key. The way that we interpret those physiological responses. So we've talked about 
physiological or bodily changes and how we interpret those bodily changes. Sometimes we interpret those bodily changes, that sweaty palm, that racing heart, and we could say that we're scared. Or we could interpret that bodily changes, those sweaty palms and that racing heart as excitement. And oftentimes when we attribute it to something positive like excitement or something new, then we're going to have a more positive outcome than when we attribute it to something negative like fear and uh, or anxiety. Those are often linked to much more negative outcomes. Another thing that factors into self-efficacy is self-defeating behaviors. And self-defeating behaviors are just that. They are not going to increase your self-efficacy, but rather these are going to um, inhibit your self-efficacy, which is in turn also could could, um, decrease your self-regulation. So self-defeating behaviors are unintentional or intentional actions that are not in your self-interest. It's this deliberate self-destruction. And they oftentimes thwart a person's or stop a person's um, self-interest. And so there's several, there are three categories of intentional self-defeating behaviors. These are things like deliberate self-destruction, trade-offs, and counterproductive strategies. These um, three different behaviors are all self-defeating, and sometimes there is evidence that we oftentimes are trying to fail at a task so that then we can preserve ourselves, um, so that you know we can kind of distort the judgments and and escape some immediate downfalls. Um, So they can, in a very limited capacity, be self-preserving, but they really do not help with our self-efficacy or building up that self-regulation. The other thing that factors into our self-esteem is how other people perceive us. And this gets back to that um, state self-esteem and how our public self Uh, influences our self-esteem. And so there's a lot of different ways. Our public self is the image that we present to other people or the image that we present when we're in social interactions. So who are you in in social interactions? And a lot of people who struggle with self-esteem struggle with this because they feel that there's some incongruence or that who they are, that public self, is not the same person that they are in the inside. And when they struggle with that, that's going to create a lot of anxiety. It's also going to create that self-esteem that is going to be very fluctuating because it's going to be dependent upon how other people perceive you. So there's some things that we do to kind of manage our impressions. And our impression management, it refers just to that, how we our our conscious efforts to influence how people perceive us and which then will also tie into our self-esteem. So there are some common self-presentation strategies that we do or some ways that we present ourselves in public. And these are things like um, uh, self-promotion, exemplification, intimidation, supplication, and um, 
ingratiation. Ingratiation is the first one that we're going to talk about. And with ingratiation, this is when you behave in a manner that um, perceives you, that allows other people to perceive you as likable. So doing things like giving people compliments, um, hopefully that uh, you're sincere about these compliments because ingratiation is just that it's, it's kind of ingratiating other people and embracing other people so that other people will like you. Um, these are things like, uh, gestures, um, leaving other people feeling almost like they're indebted to you or, um, you know, like you've done them some kind of favor. And so that's one way that we can present ourselves so that other people will like us. The second one is self-promotion. We can promote ourselves um, so that other people will like us, kind of. But um, again, and this one's kind of tricky because sometimes, particularly in situations that are not in like a job interview when we're meeting new people, um, self-promotion can almost come across as egotistical. And so we want to be very careful and very respectful when we're doing self-promotion and playing up our strong points so that other people will see us as competent and see us as um, how we want to be seen. The next one is exemplification, and exemplification is trying to project kind of this honest image. We are exemplifying the um, characteristics that we think people will like. Uh, and when we're in groups of people and, you know, maybe we think that they want to see an honest person, we'll exemplify that. We'll do things and exhibit behaviors that exemplify what an honest person would do. And so that's exemplification. The next one is intimidation. And this intimidation is um, usually kind of not necessarily a positive thing, but it's very much a um, non-voluntary relationship. It kind of gives this impression of don't mess with me. And so a lot of times um, this tactic can be um, threatening, but it can also... Um, be a self-presentation that sends this impression that may be fair, uh, favorable. People may be impressed by the fact that, you know, you're uh, not going to be a pushover and that, that people are not going to be able to um, intimidate you. And then the last one is supplication. And supplication is kind of a last resort. Supplication is like begging and pleading and groveling. And again, these are, again, it's, a last resort oftentimes because it's not necessarily presenting you in the best light. It is kind of presenting you as humble, but not necessarily in the best light. And so these are some of the common ways in which people try to um, present themselves. And again, these are going to change based on the situation that you're in. And you can see these, um, particularly things like exemplification. You may be around somebody who in one group of people is displaying one characteristics of exemplification while in another situation they're displaying another characteristic. Or, you know, if they're around a group of people that maybe are at church, they may be displaying exemplification of, you know, being honest and being a, a moral character. And then when they're around a, a group of friends, maybe from school, they're in more of an intimidation mode and kind of showing off or being that uh, macho person for other people. And so we kind of adapt our 
um, public self to the group that we're around. Although there is some concern with that, that again, if it's not congruent with our self-concept and our self-scheme of who we are, then it leaves us feeling empty and lost oftentimes. So the last thing that we're going to talk about with impress, uh, excuse me, with impression management is um, some motives. Um, these are uh, some motives that um, help us to kind of adjust the way that people see um, to see us in public. And that's one of the reasons those these we want to kind of shift people, especially if you're in that um, if you're in that state esteem where you're trying to build your self esteem by other people's acceptance, then you're going to adjust and motivate your behavior or change your behavior based on these five tactics or based on these five self perceptions um, very quickly based on the group that you're in, which can oftentimes leave you. Uh, feeling kind of lonely and conflicted. So what are some ways in which we can build our self-esteem? Can we build our self-esteem? The good news is we can build our self-esteem. And as we saw, building our self-esteem is typically through building self-efficacy and also building some self-regulation. So one of the first things that we can do to build our self-esteem is recognize that you can control your self-image. That self-image that we were just talking about that you present to other people, you have that control to be able to present a self-image that you want to present. And that even if that self-image goes against what everybody else has been telling you about yourself, you can present the self-image that you want to present. Uh, in the TED Talk this week, it talks about the danger of the single story. We are not one-dimensional people. We have many stories, and we can choose the self-image and the self-story that we are going to tell and that we want the world to see. And so you can control that self-story. You can control that self-image. And yes, it is through um, social comparison but you can also accept or reject the feedback that you receive from social comparison. You can also learn more about yourself. Learning more about yourself is one of the best ways to boost your self-esteem. When you objectively review yourself and your relationships, you can help discover things about yourself that will create a better picture of yourself. And then utilizing feedback uh, from others as well as your own feedback, you can um, set goals for yourself because when you set goals for yourself, you're not letting other people set your goals. You want to, which is a common trap. We oftentimes allow other people to set goals for ourselves. And then when we don't meet up to their standards, we feel like we have lost or we feel like we have failed. But if we make our own decisions and we set our own goals, then we can evaluate how we can reach these goals and whether or not they're achievable goals based on our realistic um, evaluations of ourselves. We can also, when we set our own goals, recognize if these goals are unrealistic. 
This is a key to also understanding ourselves. When we understand ourselves, we can also understand the limitations that we may have. We are all going to have limitations, limitations on time, limitations on our our achievements, limitations on what motivates us. For some people, we may not be motivated to go back to school. We may not be motivated to do as well as other people, and that's okay because all you need to pass is a passing grade. And so not everybody has to be the A student in the class. And so we can we can evaluate unrealistic goals. If you're taking a whole load of classes or a full load of classes in the summertime, it may be unrealistic to think that you're going to get A's in all of them, especially if you're working full-time or if online learning is not for you. So we can reevaluate these unrealistic goals to set more realistic goals that will help us feel like we have accomplished and and been successful. We can modify the negative self-talk. Negative self-talk and that self-defeating behaviors is one of the biggest things that plays into negative self-efficacy and negative self-esteem. We can modify that self-talk by giving ourselves credit for the things that we have been successful in. We can also reevaluate these situations. For example, if somebody breaks up with you, it may not be that, that you're an unlovable person. It may be that this was not a good match, that you were not paired together, and it really has nothing to do with you, but really may even have more to do with the other person. We can emphasize our strengths looking at our strengths and playing to those accomplishments. No different than um, Adler, who looked at the uh, Alfred Adler when we were looking at personality, talked about overcompensation. It's not really overcompensation, but we're just going to emphasize those strengths. We all have things that we're good at and things that we're not good at. We want to emphasize those strengths and diminish those weaknesses because Those weaknesses, focusing on your weaknesses is not going to make you feel successful, nor is it going to um, lead to a positive self-esteem. And then lastly, we can approach others with a positive outlook. No different than we were looking at before with that optimistic versus pessimistic outlook. When we approach others with a positive outlook, other people will view us as being positive and that will feed into that state um, self-esteem where then they're going to, the feedback that we're going to get from them is going to be positive. And so it will be this great cycle in which we are approaching other people positively. They're reflecting our positive um, outlook and enhancing our positive self-esteem. Now, of course, This will also can reverse, and this is the vicious cycle of low self-esteem and rejection. When we have that low self-esteem and rejection, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. When we dwell on that low self-esteem and that rejection, we're going to portray a pessimistic or a rejecting outlook, which is only going to come back to us in a rejecting form. So we want to make sure that we are projecting that positive that positive outlook to others so that then they can reflect that positive um, self-state or that positive state self-esteem and that will help 
to enhance our self-esteem. I look forward and I encourage you to use that conditioning that we talked about to change just one of these aspects. Focus on one thing this week. Maybe it's diminishing that self-talk, or maybe it's approaching other people with a positive self-outlook and see how easy it is to change this one thing that can help increase your self-efficacy and your self-esteem over the next couple of weeks.